Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, With episode 545 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week across NXT and AEW, we have NXT building directly for the Vengeance Day premium live event in two weeks' time. I didn't even realize it was that close. AEW, very interestingly, doing a long build for Revolution in March, yet they're already building multiple matches in January. That is a completely new creative deal from AEW. We have an absolute ton, as always, to discuss on today's show. The Silver King is also a bit limited on time. We are taping this Wednesday night, almost instant analysis style, coming out of the end of Dynamite. I have an early car ride on Thursday morning. You may ask why. Well, if you're asking that, you haven't heard a lot of recent episodes of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. The Silver King is on his way to the 2024 WWE Royal Rumble, my first wrestling event in an arena or stadium. I say that as a modifier, because of course I did see that special NXT show with Undertaker and John Cena, all those guys a couple months ago, but my first major wrestling show in five years since WrestleMania 35 cannot wait. And because of all that, we had to do this podcast on Wednesday night. So if there's anything slightly old by the time you listen to it on Thursday, that is the reason why. Allow me to kick off the show as I always do with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It is also where you can tweet and DM us questions and comments that we will read on the show. Pinned to our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast is a ballot for the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards. Getting Over has been nominated as Best Wrestling Podcast. There's only like one week left of voting. As I've mentioned, you can use an incognito browser, maybe vote as many times as you want. You can also vote once a week on a regular browser, but please visit us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Click that link in the pinned tweet to the top of our profile and vote for Getting Over. We are trying to win our first ever podcasting award. It would mean a lot to us. It would be a great way to advertise and promote the show. So please help us help you as you can enjoy more performance enhancing audio from the Silver King and on Tuesdays, plus plenty of other times, vintage Chris Vanini. With that said, let's jump right into the show. We're going to start with NXT. We'll move to AEW second as we generally do. There's just a lot more to talk about when it comes to AEW, given there's five hours of programming every single week. As always, there are timestamps in the episode description. So if for some reason you wish to jump around, you can do that. But I hope you listen to the entire show. NXT on Tuesday. I thought it was a tremendous episode from start to finish. There was a banger match to open the show. It was really the lone match that over-delivered on NXT. Everything else was okay. It's a good. Uh, but there's a lot of great storyline and character development some people delivered the best promos of their careers on this NXT episode. I found that to be interesting. So let's start with the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. This was a semifinal match. 
Axiom and Nathan Frazier going up against Baron Corbin and Braun Breaker. Corbin came out wearing wolf headgear for the Wolf Dogs, even though that's not their name. The faces attacked with like two full minutes of high energy offense. They stood tall before the bell even rang. Really fun. Axiom got murdered with the powerbomb into the announce table. Breaker caught Frazier flying for a snap world's strongest slam. Braun then literally flipped Axiom in the air and hit a cutter while he was falling. It was super cool. Uh, Frazier hit a froggy crossbody outside and both faces hit frog splashes on Breaker inside. Breaker escaped an armbar powerbombing Axiom into Frazier. Corbin hit a spin style deep six on Frazier plus a Death Valley driver and Brainbuster on Axiom for a false finish. I told you this match was good. Then they combined for an assisted toss power slam for another false finish. Braun took an avalanche Spanish fly from Axiom with Frazier adding a Phoenix splash for a broken fall. Corbin countered a tornado DDT, pausing midway for end of days and Breaker cut Frazier in half with a powerful spear to get the win. We're less than a month into 2024. I actually think This is my favorite WWE match of the year so far. Again, we're like 24 days into the month. Certainly the most fun match that WWE has put on to this point. The high octane start caught your attention right away. And outside of a commercial break, the action never slowed down. Corbin and Breaker not only look like a legitimate team, they might be the best pairing in all of WWE right now. Just based on this performance, this could have been on the main roster and you would not have thought twice about it. They work ridiculously well together, so much better than I expected, and Axiom and Frazier were the perfect opponents. Seriously, you put this thing on Raw or SmackDown, it tears the house down. 4.25 stars A, and I don't think that's overdoing it whatsoever. As I've said, Corbin and Breaker, they need to win the Classic. They should also win the tag team titles as soon as possible and take them into stand and deliver. That's at a minimum. Josh Briggs stepped to Ilya Dragunov backstage. Dragunov questioned him being brave but dumb coming at him. Briggs shot back that Ilya was doing Trick Williams dirty by making him fight twice in one night at Vengeance Day. Trick ran between them to keep Ilya healthy. So Briggs got in his face saying Williams would jump right back into Camarillo Hayes' pocket when he loses. That resulted in them, of course, deciding to fight one another with Dragunov cautioning Williams to ensure he stays healthy. Mello was doing some film work asking why Trick is fighting Ilya's battle for him. Williams said he was concerned with Dragunov's health. Hayes reminded that Ilya attacked him. Then he got real sarcastic, saying Williams saved Dragunov from an ass-kicking unnecessarily. Mello was talking real talk this whole time, just straight facts about Trick putting himself in danger for no reason. Trick came back saying Mello has Austin Theory on Friday. He's got this match tonight, and they'll link up after that. There was no real animosity or ulterior motives displayed this time, at least in the backstage part. Both strong segments, they set up a solid TV booking to extend the storyline into next week. It's just nice to get segments that have that real feeling on TV that are not that contrived, and that's what this was. Trick fought Briggs. Dragunov was on commentary. Extremely even match. Both guys hit high-impact moves. Ilya at one point gave Trick a pep talk ringside when Williams dodged a boot that sent Dragunov flying over the announce table. Williams capitalized with a roundhouse kick on Briggs. He went to the top rope when Ilya hopped onto the ring apron. So Mello ran in from the crowd to pull Dragunov down and prevent Trick from getting distracted. Williams caught Briggs blind with a rolling cover, only for Briggs to pop up and immediately deck Williams with a lariat. Briggs left pleased with himself and Dragunov was furious. Trick backstage shoved Mello for showing up. Hayes was frustrated at Williams and rightfully so, he was just there to help him. They got into a screaming match backstage with Trick saying Ilya wasn't going after him, but Briggs. But it was Mello who left Trick speechless this time, 
telling him to wake up because Ilya is clearly trying to get the best of him, just like he did Mello and Corbin. This was just a really solid match top to bottom with Briggs getting a good look against one of the top stars in NXT right now. I like Briggs as a heel, especially coming off the JBL spit knowledge at him stuff last week. I definitely think he can step into the top of the card in 2024 if there are some call-ups on the main roster. Beyond that, the continued build of Mello and Trick, that hit again, and it's always great when Ilya loses his mind and flips out. There are so many different layers to Mello and Trick, including Hayes, you know, possibly gaslighting him for talking about himself in that latter segment that I was mentioning. We're at the point where this does need to pop off soon, and obviously Vengeance Day is the perfect spot for that to happen, especially with Stand and Deliver coming up in a few months. William Regal made his return to WWE television walking out of Shawn Michaels' office. Apparently, he and Ava were in a meeting with HBK. Regal congratulated her for being the youngest general manager in WWE history. He gave her some words of warning for what comes with the position, and he promised he sh- that she could, I'm sorry, contact him at any time for advice. So The Rock gets a TKO board of directors chair on Tuesday, and then 12 hours later, his daughter is the general manager of NXT. I kid, but this was a cool little passing of the torch segment. I'd have loved to have seen HBK with them or a clip from the meeting or something like that. Not sure I love Ava in this role on her own, but it's pretty clear based on what we've seen from her in ring, she's probably not gonna be a wrestler. So they're finding something else for her to do. The problem is that she doesn't speak that well either. Now, as far as Regal goes, I would love it if he actually was a part of WWE TV. He could manage Pete Dunne and Tyler Bate on SmackDown, and it would make all the sense in the world. Another incredible role for him. Look, if WWE gets Kazuchika Okada, Regal managing Okada would be out of this world. So I'm just glad Regal's back. And I hate to use this term, like trust me, but I'm just glad he's back in the extended WWE universe. Lowercase you there. Uh, Lyra Valkyria was watching film backstage when Tatum Paxley popped in, scaring her, saying teaming was the highlight of her career. She was also holding a black feather. Lyra said teaming last week was a one-time thing. She has to focus on Roxanne Perez, and she doesn't have time to respond to all of Paxley's hundreds of text messages. Tatum understood with a sinister look, so one presumes she was thinking that she needs to take out Roxy so that they can have more time together. This was pretty well done, all things considered. Valkyria is improving as a speaker with each additional rep that she is getting. So we got Valkyria and Perez. They met in the main event segment for a contract signing presided over by Ava. They agreed that this match is one that everyone wants to see, one that could main event stand and deliver. Roxy reiterated that she never lost the title and is finally getting the one-on-one opportunity she deserved after fighting through a bunch of bullshit and multi-person matches. She promised that Lyra would follow in her own footsteps, trying to chase the title that she lost for a year. Lyra said she's replaced Roxy at the top of NXT, doesn't need to prove herself. They continued down this path for like the rest of the segment, with Lyra saying she's physically and mentally tougher than Roxy and will put her permanently in her shadow after Vengeance Day. So Ava forced them to sign the contract. They did a stare down in front of the table and a handshake. And then after Lyra left the ring, Tatum crawled out from underneath the table, grabbed Roxy from behind and gave her a huge spine buster through the table. Valkyria immediately ran into the ring. She shoved Paxley away and screamed at her as she sat head in her hands, upset for pissing off Lyra. I said moments ago that Ava hasn't been a great talker. She was actually quite solid in this segment. I'll give her the credit. Lyra and Roxy, they were also pretty good on the mic. I like how NXT picks one major match to do this contract signing format for ahead of each PLE. 
This one hit well. They both had legitimate points. Roxy played a tweener role to make Lyra the babyface in the match. And the result with Paxley's attack and Valkyria shitting on her, that has us going into Vengeance Day thinking this could go either way. Lyra will be under 90 days as champion by the time the match rolls around, but that's about the maximum length reigns have been since Mandy Rose dropped the title. I do want to double back though and make it clear. I particularly loved how this wrapped up with the Tatum attack. It was a really hot end to the show that could have been cold coming off of a plain contract signing. So Red and Sinclair fought Lash Legend. This was set up through the Battle Royal Elimination. Sinclair backstage was convincing herself that she deserves to be in NXT, getting her first singles match. Fallon Henley popped in to calm her down and give her some props, telling her it will all work out if she stays true to herself. Ren was wearing like way too much denim, and she did a self-high five, which made her gimmick feel like it was straight out of the 90s. Sinclair worked as a big-time underdog babyface. She got a couple hope spots, but Legend caught her with a choke-style Liger Bomb for the win. Henley saved her from any post-match stuff, and then they decided to team up. Just remember that Sinclair is plenty experienced on the independents despite her age, so it's great to see her get factored into the roster so quickly. She also talked better than many women who have been NXT a couple years already currently talk. She's probably going to be a fast rising star, not like Roxy, for, you know, for example, but perhaps on a similar track to that. Uh, Carmen Petrovic fought Blair Davenport. Petrovic got killed with a double stomp on her back. She had a couple interesting kicks, but Davenport hit a Falcon Arrow and Kamagoye for the relative squash win. Carmen has a ways to go. She's still super green. Blair carried her here and even struggled to do it a little bit late. This was also set up through the Battle Royal. I did forget to mention that. Joe Gacy had a match against Dijak. Gacy attacked Dijak during his entrance and eventually beat him with a chair. When he missed a shot, Dijak caught him with a discus boot. Gacy flew through the fake base of the crow's nest. Dijak then hit a huge choke slam onto and through the announce table. Security pulled Dijak off Gacy, but he like respawned and got him in a chokehold until they were separated. The match never started, but really who gives a shit? This was hot fire. I found it to be much more intense than the New Day Imperium attack Monday on Raw. And that's a shame because that's the main roster. That should be better. But Dijak and Gacy was more entertaining to me. It does seem like a lot of aggression off the jump for a few that's just cracking into gear. And I'd be interested to get some promos or something from these guys next week to add some story to the mix. But it was tough not to like what they did Tuesday. This hit big time and Dijak continues to rule as just a real tough fighter out there. Jada Parker and Out the Mud were shown having torn up D'Angelo family restaurant, threatening the manager. Tony D'Angelo later cut a promo from a moving car with the entire family threatening OTM that they would be getting even soon. There's always like the corniness factor to consider when dealing with this group, but it worked okay. And it was cool to do it from a moving car. I haven't really seen something like that in a long time. Dragon Lee fought scripts. Dragon did a front flip out of the ring, but the truck half missed it production. Uh, it did not miss a tope somersault from scripts who also had a froggy crossbody inside. They had a nice counter sequence ending with a Spanish fly. D'Angelo family ran down to attack the other heels outside the ring. Adriana Rizzo hit a tope suicida. Scripps distracted ate Destino for the Dragon Lee victory. Obafemi watched all this from the crow's nest. He decided to accept Dragon's challenge for Vengeance Day. And it was at this point that I realized that show was next weekend. The match was a lot of fun. There was really no rhyme or reason to it unless I'm forgetting something from last week. And that's frustrating. You know, I criticize AEW for it. I'm gonna criticize them in a moment for it again this week. But to just do a match with no real reason for it happening, I, I, I don't really like that generally. But it was nice to see Scripps get work against someone who can match his athleticism. He's definitely improved in the ring. And along with the character work, the arrow is pointing up for him. Ridge Holland backstage talked about Gallus 
handing his ass to him and how that galvanized him on his journey to redemption. He clarified that he's going to take on Gallus by himself. That's what we suspected last week. Holland trying to go through them one by one makes a lot of sense given his gimmick, and it should take up some TV time building him back up. Von Wagner and Mr. Stone walked out onto the UCF football field where Stone's kids took them through like an 80s training montage, working up Wagner's speed and endurance for the Heritage Cup. He bench pressed one of the kids and did stadiums, which absolutely suck if you've ever tried to do those. By the way, I had no idea he was a UCF football player, just didn't realize it at all. Uh, that somehow got past me. It ended with Vaughn destroying a tackling dummy with Noam Dar's face on it. Pretty sure this is my favorite thing they've done together to date. Legitimately entertaining. There was Supernova sessions with Lola Vice as the guest. This started with Dar talking shit to Wagner. Earlier in the show, Electra Lopez was on a mission backstage to find Vice. She interrupted Ariana Grace at one point while Grace was practicing a speech. Back to the sessions, Dar introduced Vice, pointing out how she was so smart to go into the battle royal and eliminate Lopez. Lola said her friendship with Electra had an expiration date because she tried to leech onto her when she debuted in NXT. Lopez came out and came back with easily, unquestionably, the best promo of her career. Maybe one of the best in NXT period recently. I mean, it was like shoot style. She called Vice a phony who went from failing as an actress on a Lifetime show to failing to fake it in MMA to shaking her ass on social media and getting an NXT contract. Those are facts. That's all true. Then Electra got in the ring and straight up tackled Lola over a couch until they got separated. Talk about over-delivering. This was easily the best promo and best segment in Lopez's entire career, as I just said. Her promo was totally natural, included some great lines. Whether written or not, the way she delivered them was perfect. And she had the audience in the palm of her hand the entire time she was speaking. If this was a sink or swim moment for her, she freaking swam. Lola was okay. She's far more rehearsed and recited. She's also younger and she's newer to the game. But they took a match that would have been a shrug a week ago and gave it some big time juice for next week. This is the lecture we've been waiting to see, and hopefully it's just the start from her. Trey Bearhill fought Lexus King. There was a walk and talk promo from King before the match, calling himself the face of Tuesday nights. King dominated and won a relative squash with a coronation. This is exactly what it should have been, given Bearhill's a neophyte who would have been in the breakout tournament. Surprised there was nothing post-match with Eddie Thorpe, which seems to be a ready-made feud coming out of this, but they didn't really address it on Tuesday. Chase U was being packed up by repo men, with Andre Chase still disheveled and Riley Osborne apologizing for failing the university. Chase took the blame with Duke Hudson confident everything could be replaced until they took his MVP trophy, which freaked him out. Chase snapped when they took his podium. There was also a helmet, like a football helmet they took, which makes you think like Chase U is an accredited university with a football team. That's a little stretch too far. But uh, they said they would say their goodbyes next week. And then they turned off the lights in the classroom. Very fresh Prince of Bel-Air, last one there, you know, long for the, the past type of moment. So clearly we're going to get JC Jane's master plan coming to fruition next week, presumably to save Chase U at the last minute. This was purposefully corny. And now that they've dragged it out, I'm just down to see what they have in store for us. King tried to flirt with Thea Hale and JC backstage when Riley popped in to save the day and chase him away. Osborne asked for some one-on-one -on -one time with Hale, and she tried to act all cool, but freaked out when he left. Uh, Jane reminded her that she's supposed to be grown and able to handle stuff like this, so Hale checked herself and then calmed down. This hit pretty well. Definitely continues to head in a positive direction for Thea, and JC is making an impact in her role. I would like to see her back in the ring sooner than later, though. Malik Blade and Idris Anofe were pouting backstage when the high-energy fitness chick started spouting catchphrases and positive affirmations. Anofe said they don't need positivity but luck, and they need it on their side just to make a change. She stayed hyped and then chopped Anofe in the chest. 
with Blade suggesting they give her methods a shot because it can't hurt. I figured out her name is Brinley Reese. They need to start using that in every segment because it's going to take a while to get used to it. And finally, no quarter catch crew got the same video package they had a week ago. So that really wraps up NXT. Next week will be the go home show for Vengeance Day. So we will do an entire ultimate preview podcast right here on getting over. But overall, this was a super entertaining show. Like I said, that opening match just banged. It absolutely delivered. I actually think now that I'm double backing on it, I saw everything that AEW did. I think that's the TV match of the week. I really do believe that. Axiom, Nathan Frazier, Baron Corbin, and Braun Breaker. And you never would have guessed that when you considered of many of the matches that AEW put on. But NXT, absolutely rolling right now. Real storyline heavy, but super entertaining. Let's move over to AEW. There was a lot of good in AEW this week, but I'm going to warn you a bit that I'm going to sound like a broken record occasionally when I note which matches happened without any build to them. I mentioned some of this last week, but it's actually important to my enjoyment of wrestling that matches happen for specific reasons. Not every single match necessarily, but at least the majority of them, especially on your main show. This isn't being pointed out when I say this to be divisive. It's rather to show that AEW has room for improvement creatively, particularly when it comes to Collision and Rampage, but especially if they're putting big matches on Dynamite that have nothing preceding them. That's a frustration for me. So I did a count on the sh- on the matches that happened in AEW and which ones actually had build going into them, just like I did last week. We're going to give you those numbers now. So by my final count, there were 16 matches that were put on across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage this week. 12 of them had no build whatsoever. One of them had what I would consider half a build because it's an extremely long-term feud that they just did a match for, even though there was nothing directly preceding it. And then three matches had build. But of those three, two of them were the Adam Copeland Cope Open matches. So it made sense from a storyline standpoint because he's doing an open challenge and people are coming to fight him. But in reality, those matches don't have specific reasons for happening in terms of like a feud or an argument or a storyline developing between those people. So, I mean, we're talking about one to three matches out of 16 that had legitimate storyline build this week. And that just doesn't work for me. That is immensely frustrating. And I'm going to, as we go through the show, I'm going to explain to you my specific standpoints on each of them. So you understand what I mean when I say it doesn't have build and also how it could have been done better. I did that numerous times during this episode. Before we get to all of that, AW Collision and Dynamite, they debuted somewhat of an updated look. Suddenly, those heavily criticized LED barricades and ring aprons that WWE uses are now part of the standard AEW presentation. I believe they've used it occasionally previously, but this was Collision and Dynamite back-to-back. The crowd was super dark for Dynamite, which I presume is because it was sparsely attended. I believe it was the lowest attended Dynamite outside of Daly's place ever. I heard some people had audio issues on Wednesday. The audio was not crisp, but it wasn't awful for me. I heard it perfectly fine. It just sounded like for the first 15 minutes of the show, they were speaking into a tin can a little bit, but it wasn't off-putting, and it wasn't something I would have noticed if other people didn't mention it. Now, the big news item this week is that AEW is reintroducing the rankings system. I think this is great news. 
It never should have gone away from in the first place. The problem was AEW just failed to use them properly. They would artificially inflate records with bullshit squashes on dark that people didn't watch. And even people who were number one contenders for a really long time, like FTR for the tag team titles, they just wouldn't get their matches because it wasn't in the booking plans. The key is to use a ranking system to aid kayfabe storytelling. That requires foresight and it requires consistency. But AEW coming out of the Continental Classic and the way that was handled is entirely capable of providing consistency and keeping track of these things. It also should help to solve one of AEW's biggest problems, which as I just explained, is Tony Khan making matches with no rhyme or reason to them. Now, once the rankings come back, if you have a number two versus number four match, even if there's not a storyline reason for it, there is a reason for it to happen. They're competing to be the number one spot in the rankings to get a title match. And that's all you need. If you want to do a sports-based presentation or a sports-based product, and it does feel like AEW is trying to go back in that direction with the whole restore the feeling gimmick and the types of matches that are being put on TV. And I, I don't roll my eyes at that. That's what I wanted from AEW when it initially came out. If you're going to go back to that, then including the raking system and using that as somewhat of a crutch to make matches, that is a massive positive. And look, it's one thing to say, restore the feeling. And yes, I roll my eyes every time I hear it, just like I did WWE Universe for plenty of years. But Tony seems to actually have listened to people and taken stock of what's been going so wrong for AEW over the last half year or longer. AEW got away from what it did best. The Continental Classic seemed to remind him of that. You couple that with the influx of super talented wrestlers from New Japan, the AEW product, it seems to be making a turnaround, at least on screen, that I've been hoping to see. They're even booking, as I mentioned earlier, AEW Revolution like six, seven, eight weeks out. In the past, they would wait until like three weeks before the show to actually build matches for the card. And this is why, folks, when some of you complain that on a single episode, I may criticize AEW too much, I don't flinch or falter from that. Not only because my opinion is my opinion, but this change shows that Tony has finally understood much of what I've been saying for the last year. I haven't been calling for the rankings to come back, but I've been calling for more consistent booking, storytelling, people getting title matches for reasons. An example being Orange Cassidy handing out title matches to whoever wants them, even if they haven't been on TV or fought in AEW. Just didn't make any sense. Now with the rankings coming back, as long as they handle it well, the creative team is larger. There's people there who can potentially help Tony keep it in line, being like a showrunner almost to a degree to make sure everything fits where it needs to go for the record purposes, for the match purposes, for future booking. As soon as they can get that together, that's going to be really good for the creative product. It still does not excuse making random matches for no reason whatsoever when they have nothing to do with the rankings. So let's go ahead. We're going to break down Dynamite, Rampage, and Collision. That's not the order I usually say it, uh, but we're going to do it based on storyline and we're going to break down everything that happens on those shows. And I'm going to point out some of these individual issues that I have. On Dynamite, Samoa Joe opened the show repeating his deal about championship opportunities needing to be earned. Hook immediately entered saying, last week, you won. I lost. 
I will see you again. The dude sounded like a caveman. Joe shook hands with him, then demanded he get out of the ring. So security went after him and Hook just took them all out. And that was the entire opening segment. It felt like it was four minutes, five minutes. It was legitimately pointless. The crowd did not react at all. This should have been Joe putting Hook over for being surprisingly strong competition. Instead, he didn't even mention him. He comes out, then he dismissed him as unworthy. Heal or not, that's a missed opportunity, and it was incredibly awkward. Beyond that, and I've said this before, Hook has a great look, a great name, a great theme, a great presentation. This kid has not developed at all in AEW. That promo was god-awful. On Rampage, Penta El Zero Miedo defeated Anthony Henry in less than four minutes with Fear Factor, a match that had no reason to happen. Rare Penta singles W. Thought, hey, it'd be cool if this actually leads to something for him, but we all knew Hangman Page was coming next, and that would not be the case. Hangman and Penta was the first match on Dynamite. It followed the Joe segment. And while it was booked with no storyline, the idea that these two are top contenders fighting to improve their title challenger credentials, that deserves like half credit. Penta countered a buckshot lariat attempt into Made in Japan. This was a great spot. Spot of the match, probably the spot of the entire show. Hangman came back with Deadeye on the ring apron and his moonsault outside. Penta ducked buckshot lariat, so Hangman reloaded it and hit it for the win. These guys are obviously terrific in ring. This banged. We know that Hangman and likely Swerve Strickland will be going after Joe in a triple threat, so the winner was not a surprise. Maybe one day Penta's going to get a legitimate singles run, but it's been like four years. I don't expect it anymore. 3.75 stars, B+. On Rampage, Darby Allen fought Jeff Hardy. Darby hit a flying somersault outside only for Jeff to show heel tendencies, getting aggressive, throwing him over the announce table, hitting him with objects ringside. Hardy missed his corner move into the barricade. Darby missed a tope suicida, crashing through an open chair. Later, he had an avalanche code red. Hardy hit a draping neckbreaker onto the apron, then missed a swanton bomb outside through a table. Darby then countered Twist of Fate into a jackknife cover for the win. Jeff clapped briefly after the bell, but then he refused to dap him up. He rolled out of the ring. This was far more about the spots than the wrestling, but it was immensely entertaining. It's the best Jeff has looked probably since the last time they fought, though there was really no thought the match wouldn't deliver coming into it. Of course it was going to. I also enjoyed the finish because it creates an opening to do this again down the line with a more decisive winner. There was not a finishing move that was utilized. The bigger issue is that this is the second meeting of two guys constantly compared to one another, but it was randomly booked without any storyline reason, and this was the main event of the C show. This could have main evented Collision, 3.75 stars B+. On Dynamite, Swerve fought Hardy. Jeff did some heel stuff, which didn't result in booze because Swerve is a heel. There was a cool spot where Swerve caught Hardy hanging off the bottom rope for an elevated neckbreaker outside. Jeff jumped off the steps to drill Swerve over the barricade. Then he came back with Whisper in the Wind inside. That's a tongue twister right there. Uh, Jeff hit Twist of Fate onto the top of some steel steps, but missed Swanton Bomb. Then he ate House Call, a flatliner, and a Swerve Stomp with Swerve doing Hardy's hand gestures in the finish. This was really solid. Swerve had to go half speed, a lot of it because Jeff was blowed up, but it was a resurgent week for Jeff, who had two strong matches, even if neither of them had any semblance of storyline relevance. Swerve winning was obvious, given what we mentioned earlier about Hangman and Joe, but this was super entertaining. I'd much prefer that Swerve use House Call and or JML Driver as his finishers instead of Swerve Stomp. That move sucks. 3.75 stars, B+. Consistency here. Later backstage, Swerve and Hangman argued over their records, only to be informed by Renee that they will be in dealer's choice matches next week where each chooses the other's opponent. Now, if you want to have random matches, this is the exact 
style of booking that you can do to make sense of it. It also gives the viewer a reason to tune in. Now we as fans know both of these guys are going to be in action. There's going to be surprise opponents and those opponents will probably be high quality, but the stipulation is the story. It's very nicely done. This is what I'm talking about. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks were backstage in suits, acting like EVP is looking at a show rundown. They talked about morale being up and catering being improved. Then they gave Top Flight a bunch of guff for no reason. They did the whole like harsh manager who then pretends to be your friend after criticizing you. I'm not 100% sure. It feels to me like they're trying to do a mockery of Vince McMahon as part of their gimmick, given the mustaches, given them looking at a rundown after the show already began. That's fun tongue-in-cheek stuff as long as it's not their entire gimmick. Also on Dynamite, Sting and Darby hit the ring. Sting had extra black face paint, which looked really odd. Darby told some seemingly fake story about convincing Sting to return to the ring years ago before he came back to AEW. The Young Bucks watched backstage with their headsets, and it was kind of fun to see them producing a segment of their new rivals. Darby then said clearly they are number one contenders, being 27-0, and got the crowd to chant, you still got it, to convince Sting to go after the titles. Sting said, all right. It's not really the exclamation point on the segment that you would want. Granted, there were like 1,800 people in the crowd, so he wasn't going to get a huge pop, but it would have been cool if he said something other than, all right, Darby did a good job weaving a tail to set it up. He has improved significantly on the mic over the last couple of years. Ricky Starks and Big Bill backstage accepted the challenge. They promised that Sting wouldn't make it to Revolution after they fight. This is all it needed to be. On Collision, Adam Copeland fought Dante Martin. This was the next Cope open match. Martin hit a springboard moonsault, but both of Copeland's feet were somehow on the middle rope during the cover. Martin sprung into the ring again with Copeland catching him for a midair spear, followed by ground, Grindhouse. Someone's called it Groundhouse. Grindhouse, the new name for his crossface, and he got the submission victory. Good bumping for Martin throughout. He helped Copeland look spry. After the bell, Copeland said he appreciated the young guy stepping up, and he would continue working hard, like Christian Cage said, when he joined AEW. He said his goal is to bring the TNT title back to TNT. This might have actually been like one of the best on-screen moments during his AEW run so far. The promo is what I'm talking about. I'm not sure why, but I suddenly cared about the storyline and the feud more than I have recently. The idea of Copeland winning the TNT title and actually defending it with consistent open challenge matches on TNT, on Collision, that's great. That's a reason to tune into the show. On Dynamite, Copeland fought Minoru Suzuki. Yes, Really, this match happened. It really did. There was a great social media promo from Copeland that they clipped to use on TV. Now, this is what we talk about AEW needing to do all the time. So that was a positive that they did that. Even though it involves someone not in AEW, this was technically another Cope open match, and it was the main event. Cope and Suzuki crashed through a barricade in a near countout spot. Cope hit the Impaler DDT, and after an extended sequence, bounced off the ropes with a spear for a false finish. Suzuki came back, getting Copeland in a sleeper, a choke, whatever you want to call it, but he broke it in the corner and hit kill switch, Christian's move, for the 1-2-3. Copeland gave Suzuki respect after the bell, but he denied a handshake and growled in his face. Copeland said he expected that, then he repeated, as he has after every match, that he's coming for Christian Cage. We know, bro. You don't need to say it every single time. Now, as I've said many times, look, I may criticize Tony Khan's booking, and it deserves it. Don't get Everyone's booking deserves criticism. But there's no way you can give him guff for this matchmaking. This was him doing his best work here, even though, according to Copeland, he specifically requested this match. So maybe he deserves the credit more than Tony in this case. But Tony did make it happen. Exceptionally cool to get Copeland and Suzuki. And it even gets excused being random because it was a Cope-Opeland match. But this is what I'm talking about. We're trying to find reasons to give credit for 
storytelling and booking when it really doesn't deserve it because this was a random ass match. On Collision, John Moxley fought Shane Taylor. After he missed Splash by Taylor, Mox hit an RKO. It's so random that he started doing that now. They exchanged lariats and Mox hit a number of power moves before winning via submission with his bulldog choke. Lee Moriarty sat side-eye on the steel steps, angry, pissed off, disappointed at the way the match ended. After the bell, Mox said he's pissed off beyond belief and anyone, colleagues or teammates, needs to keep up with him in 2024. On Dynamite, Mox said BCC doesn't celebrate victories and he will torture anyone who cannot keep up with him or ensure AEW is the best wrestling show in the world in 2024. Another match without an actual build, it did serve a purpose in Mox beating a powerful opponent and making his statement. This is one of those situations I would just have preferred Mox coming out and cutting a five-minute promo. I don't need this match. It did absolutely nothing for him. And then we get the promo on Wednesday. And because of that, it was immensely repetitive. Now he's going to fight Moriarty on Rampage in another obvious victory. At least that match is going to have a reason because he beat Shane Taylor first. But what does this mean? It's nothing. It's not helping Mox. It's so he's beating Shane Taylor and Lee Moriarty. So what, you're going to give him like a 6-0 record and he's going to be number three on the rankings? I mean, give me a break. On Collision, Eddie Kingston and Ortiz fought Brian Danielson and Claudio Castagnoli. BCC was asked about facing Kingston after both losing to him in the Continental Classic. Brian, now without an eye patch, said it was the low point of his career and the high point of Eddie's career. Now, this match has long-term character uh, for these guys, like wanting to fight. It's it's a trade of all of them. But this one didn't have any specific reason for happening. It just happened out of nowhere, particularly with Ortiz randomly involved. Ortiz said a few words before the match. Eddie was impatient and just wanted to fight as usual. So Eddie did the machine gun chops late. And I noticed that this week, for some reason, they received a particularly high amount of criticism. I must admit, I do hate them as well. He does it as an ode to his idol in Japan, and that's cool. But it's so illegitimate as an offensive move, especially when he does regular chops extremely well. And these just pale in comparison. It's like lightly tapping someone on the chest. It's like Orange Cassidy doing it. You know what I mean? Anyway, the faces did get a lot of offense down the stretch, but it ended with Danielson hitting the Zaiku knee for the win. He beat Ortiz. He also spit on Eddie after the bell, again, disrespecting him. I find it so interesting that like Eddie hates BCC, BCC hates Eddie, when they are far more alike than they are different. All about fighting and competition above anything else. I guess maybe that's the point. That's why they dislike each other. And I do wonder at what point Eddie maybe extricates Mox from BCC. Maybe he leads to the collapse of the faction, but it just feels like BCC is kind of rudderless right now. And I'd be interested in some type of shakeup there. On collision, Daniel Garcia fought Buddy Matthews. FTR and House of Black were ringside. Garcia took some huge blows early with an apron DDT and a pump knee off steel steps outside. He came back with an apron pile driver and worked Buddy's knee into the post doing a figure four outside, just like Bret Hart. Now that he works with FTR, obviously he has to do more stuff like Bret. Next was the Dragon Slayer, again broken because he leaned too far back. You would think a wrestler would learn after doing that like 20 times not to lean that far back on his move, otherwise it's going to get broken. Buddy came back with a great deadlift jackhammer. Garcia sat up and danced rather than stay in the curb stomp stance. Buddy hit him with a fifth pump knee, and then Garcia rolled him over for a jackknife cover upset victory. The trios immediately brawled with intensity as referee, security, and wrestlers all ran down to separate everyone. Later backstage, FTR challenged House of Black to a six-man elimination steel cage match. Hell yeah. Now, this is the shit that I'm talking about. Like I said, this was intense. It was easily the best part of Collision. Two guys with a storyline reason to fight, putting on a great match that fit perfectly within that storyline. I'd have preferred Buddy to win, sure, but it was happenstance with the cover. I do wish it was not exactly the same as the Darby 
and Hardy finish. There are other ways to do the same end to a match, but that's easily overlooked because of the post-match brawl and because it was so good. Best of all is that there's a booking for next week that is not only must-see, but it's inventive. I've long thought the way to go with War Games is actually to do elimination instead of single fall. And this is now a mini version of that, one ring instead of two, but still. It should lead to a firm conclusion to the storyline, and I'm gonna go ahead and guess that it's gonna be my favorite TV match of this forthcoming week. I would almost guarantee it. I had this, by the way, at 3.75 stars and a B plus as well. On Collision, Bullet Club Gold hit the ring, doing The Rock's finally intro, sarcastically wondering if that had been done before. They're almost fully baby faces now, showing off card juice. Then they did the two words for you. Half of their promo, no joke, was WWE catchphrases. Acclaimed entered again, reiterating that they should be a supergroup, saying they'd be unstoppable in the ring, backstage, and with the fans, and all of them could even win more titles together. Acclaimed held out the scissors. The guns were about to accept. Jay White stopped them, and then all three turned around. They accepted with their guns going into the scissors, creating the Bang Bang Scissor Gang. I love this. Not exactly how we got here, but it's a fun and somewhat unexpected booking that creates a fresh faction, even though it's temporary and it's gonna be short-lived. This is just a fun storyline for what's been an ice-cold trios division. My booking expectation remains the same. They team for a short period, BCG turns on acclaimed, that leads to a unification of the six-man titles in a match. And that would certainly be the right direction because you don't need to have two sets of trios titles in one company. On Dynamite, the trios titles were on the line, the AEW trios titles, acclaimed defending against Mogul Embassy. BCG entered first with acclaimed following, decent stuff from Max Caster on the mic. White watched on stage with everyone else ringside. The guns powerbomb Prince Nana through the timekeeper's table. Anthony Bowens nearly took out the referee, then acclaimed randomly hit the 3D, plus arrival and mic drop to retain the titles. So let me get this logic straight. Mogul Embassy lost the ROH six-man tag team titles last week. They did nothing. And then they got a trios title match right away this week. How does that make any sense? Why would you not make it a non-title match or one of those eliminator matches to get them out of the division? The match was fine. The finisher spam was a bit excessive. And I'm remembering now, I'm wondering why they did the 3D. Caster got into it, I think, with Bully Ray on Twitter. So that was probably like a shot across the bow at him. They did the finisher. They didn't ask to do it. It's probably gonna be a whole thing. That's annoying if it becomes a thing, but now I realize why they did it. On Dynamite, Tony Storm and Deanna Perrazzo had a live sit-down interview on stage. First on Collision, Tony cut a promo admitting that she does remember Deanna from back in the day. There was a cool split screen with Tony's half in black and white. It really worked visually. Storm said that she heard Perrazzo got body shamed, but there's more shameful stuff about her than that. She said a bunch of other random shit. Deanna begged her to go back to being normal and... Then she showed that they have matching ankle tattoos. Commentary acted like this was some huge revelation. They have tattoos, they live together. It's not that crazy. Perrazzo threw her shoe. The black and white aesthetic kind of blitzed off the screen. Lutha randomly ate a kick, and then Deanna held up the title as Storm scurried to the back. Having legitimate personal history and not really being able to generate heat or interest based off of it, that's really tough to do. They accomplished it here. This was immensely rough, and it goes to show what I said previously. Storm's gimmick it absolutely works as a gimmick. It's over. Fans love it. It separates her from the rest of the division. The problem is when others have to interact with her outside of her universe. It's the same issue that affected Bray Wyatt for so many years in WWE. How do you translate the gimmick to the normal tropes of wrestling? AEW has yet to figure that out with Tony, but that aside, the fact that we have an actual legitimate women's title storyline as opposed to the bullshit with Rio last month, 
That's refreshing. So I give them an A for effort here. On Dynamite, Johnny TV has been rebranded with Taya Valkyria, his real life wife. Uh, they wore matching fake fur coats backstage with Taya challenging Deanna next week to prove that she deserves to be in the front of the line, not Deanna. And then they made out with each other. This was perfectly good. Johnny badly needed a refresh after all the QTV bullshit. Taya is back on TV after completely disappearing for months. And we have a reasonable match challenge for next week. It's really not that hard. All they did was this. And now the match next week is explained. That's all you got to do. On Rampage, Soraya and Ruby Soho argued backstage and Ruby started choking Harley Cameron against the wall, asking why she was messing with Angelo Parker. Soraya coached Harley to say that Anna Jay convinced her to go after him while Renee Paquette gave her the side eye. So the reason this sucked had nothing to do with the general concept. The concept was fine, but Harley was up against the wall getting choked and did not sell it at all. She looked like she was relaxed, tanning on the beach. And then number two, Ruby comes off looking like an absolute idiot, accepting that Harley, who is supposed to have her back and is a grown woman who can make her own decisions, hooked up with a guy she knows Soho likes because a random other person Anna Jay told her to. It's just terrible. I mean, it's, you know, again, the, the concept of what they're doing with them is fine. But the execution of this storyline, especially this week, it left a lot to be desired. I will say, though, Harley. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey, now. On Rampage, Chris Statlander fought Queen Aminata. Stokely Hathaway was out with Stat. Aminata got her best look yet here with some intense offense. Stat won with a spinning falcon arrow, though Aminata's shoulder was fully up during the middle of the three count, which was not stopped. The AEW referees simply need to do better. There is no excuse at this point. You see something stupid like that, you stop the count, you make them do it again. It's not that hard. Stoke raised Stat's arm, but she refused a fist bump. Later backstage, Willow Nightingale came up disheveled, apologizing that she missed the match, saying her flight was canceled. The accusation being Stoke canceled the trip. Stat said they would figure it out, which Stoke took to mean that he's actually involved in the whole figuring of it out. There was no reason for this specific match to happen. The Stoke, Stat, Willow stuff, that continues to entertain. I'd like to get some more insight into his motivation. We'll talk about Aminata in a moment, because guess what? On Collision, Thunder Rosa beat Queen Aminata with the Tijuana Bomb in a solid match. On Dynamite, she then beat Red Velvet the exact same way. That match was sloppy. So the question is, why did these matches happen? You can ask me that 10,000 times, Cole, and I'm never going to have an answer for you. This was Aminata's fourth match in three weeks, third and fourth match in three weeks, all to give other talent wins. So now she's in the old sky blue zone, which was previously occupied by others, including, by the way, Velvet, who herself has been in random matches recently. Now, I assume Aminata is eventually going to get signed, and she deserves it. She's been pretty good in the ring. She adds to the division, but it is such an incredibly lazy booking to do the same thing over and over. It's the same thing over and over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. <laughs> in the tribal chief, the head of the table, we're not interested in that. No, no. Man, do you remember when Roman Reigns used to go out and cut promos like that? I miss that Roman Reigns. Anyway, can we get a little motivation or reasoning for some of these women's matches, especially when there's only one per show? Why can't I get Thunder against Willow or Anna against Stat? Like, why, when there's only one women's match per show, are we using jobber equivalents despite AEW having an entire division of talent 
that they can utilize. Soraya, um, Ruby Soho, obviously Tony Storm and Diana Perrazzo. There's, I mean, I could name another dozen women, Anna Jay, of course, that could be utilized. And instead, you're just putting Aminata in two matches a week and Velvet in two matches a week. And you have Thunder Rosa here beating nobodies as opposed to beating somebodies and actually improving her stock. Like, I, I just, it's it's ridiculous. It really is. On Rampage, Chris Jericho fought Matt Seidel. This had the basic strange setup that we discussed last week. So actually, this is another half setup. I forgot. So it's actually, whatever the, those numbers were, 11 with none, two with a half and three with a full. So I, I did miss this one. That's my fault. Seidel got more offense than expected, including a standing corkscrew, twisting sunset flip powerbomb, and an air raid crash. Jericho eventually hit a hurricanrana and caught him with Judas effect for the win. Don Callis was on commentary. He stormed off as soon as the match ended. This was better than expected, even though it was meaningless in the grand scheme. There's really just no good reason for someone like Jericho to be doing anything on Rampage. This is the show where you can be using young talent, putting them in good matches with good storylines and getting people to try to tune in. On Collision, Seidel, again, fought Roderick Strong. Zero reasoning for this, particularly coming out of Seidel losing on the prior night. Strong won with End of Heartache. He's on the international title track, obviously. On Dynamite, Orange Cassidy backstage accepted Strong's title challenge for Revolution, but said he's not going to wait until March 3rd to wrestle and defend the title. He said there's going to be what sounded like a battle royal, but in reality is a fatal four-way on Rampage, with the winner facing him on collision. The positive is that this is a real number one contendership match. The negative is the competitors were random and all guys who consistently lose, yet they're being given a de facto number one contendership match for the number two men's title in AEW. It's, it's just terrible. On Dynamite, Trent Beretta fought Wardlow. Two guys who, by the way, could potentially be going after the international title. Although, to be fair, I think Trent already lost that opportunity. All of Undisputed Kingdom, including Adam Cole and Best Friends, were ringside. Wardlow attacked at the bell and did the helicopter F5. Trent did get some offense, including a pile driver, and hit him with a chair twice as the referee was outside the ring for some reason. Wardlow caught Trent flying for a power slam and did a cool drop knee before winning with a delayed last ride powerbomb. It was refreshing to see Wardlow in a match against a real competitor, actually selling offense and looking pretty damn good. It may have been his second best match in AEW. Seriously, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. The only way it could have been better is if it had a reason for happening, which it did not. It was another random match. Another issue is that this is all we got from Undisputed Kingdom on the show. This despite them and Cole being involved in the top angle on AEW for months. Like they're really just sidelined as a group that matters until MJF comes back. Cole is on TV. You flew him out to do the show on crutches. He walked to the ring and then he walked back up the ramp. That's all that happened. It's just stupid. On Rampage, Jay Lethal backstage told the guys without Jeff Jarrett that AEW was built on great in-ring action and he can't succeed winning gold being part of their group. Then he stormed off. I appreciate they're telling a longer term storyline here but it's been immensely repetitive. I'm sure they can conceptualize something with a bit more meat to it than this, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's coming in the next couple of weeks. And finally, Top Flight and Private Party got into it again backstage on Collision, but nothing really happened. They didn't say anything. No match was set, nothing like that. So that was AEW this week. As I mentioned, there's a lot of things I really liked. I I pointed all of those out for you, but holy shit, when you have 11 of 16 matches with zero storyline build, Zero reasoning for them happening. It is so tough to really get enthused about a show. Like, don't get me wrong. And I said this to a coworker earlier this week. I would much rather watch Hangman Page and Penta El Zero Miedo or 
Swerve Strickland and Jeff Hardy or Darby Allen and Jeff Hardy. I would much rather see all three of those matches or any of those three matches than I would, let's say, Dominic Mysterio and The Miz. Okay? But they give me a reason in WWE to care about Dominic Mysterio and The Miz. And I had no reason to care about Swerve and Jeff Hardy. And that's just the diametric difference right now between WWE creative and really most wrestling creative and what AEW has been doing over the last few weeks with Revolution coming up. And they're again, they're booking ahead of it, which is a hugely positive. That is, that is great. Maybe we're going to start getting some more storytelling elements over the coming month. I truly hope that they do give us that. It really shouldn't be that difficult. So folks, look, that was the Thursday edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And I'm realizing I never dropped this on you at any point during the show. Please remember that as far as the Silver King is concerned, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get exclusive bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recaps of the major shows, along with exclusive news posts every Friday. Again, all of that on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Please also remember to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights. You can also tweet and DM us questions and comments for the show. Pinned to the top of that profile at getting overcast is a ballot for the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards. We would love it if you vote for us as best wrestling podcast. Again, in the Twitter profile at getting overcast. And finally, here at getting over, it's all about Defy. So please leave us those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We would greatly appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back Saturday night with your WWE Royal Rumble instant analysis. Obviously, next Tuesday, your WWE show. Next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. We'll be talking NXT and AEW. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. 